Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on autism, Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. i got to get used to uh, branding myself with that. So, hi, folks. I'm the Brain Broad. Isn't that cool? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean I know a lot about brains or that I'm abroad, for that matter. It just means it was the only thing that wasn't already taken that was really cute and easy to remember and wasn't previously trademarked. I guess nobody else wanted to be the Brain Broad. Okay, I'm willing to go anywhere. So that leads us to we go on this show where other hosts have never gone before into questions that need answers, and we come up with answers. Last episode was all about sex, and we talked to Madam Becky, who's trying to put up a brothel in England and have sex for the disabled, and my goodness, what a flurry that caused. So we're calming it down a little bit this time, and we're going back to science. Not so much. Well, sex has a science involved in it, but uh, we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about something um, that you need your brains for. So hang, you know, hang in there, have a coffee, do whatever you need, so you can really listen. We're having two wonderful guests back. I don't usually do this. Don't usually have someone back, and if I do, I certainly don't have them back this quickly. But Dr. Rosakis and Dr. Baki were just so popular, and I enjoyed having them on here so much, and they had so much still to say. So I thought they might calm the waters of all that sex stuff that we perturbed and, <laughs> and add a little brain science here. So that's why they are here to talk to us and answer a question, or at least I'm going to play with this question. Is it ever too early for early intervention? And we're going to do that by kind of talking about uh, some of the prenatal conditions and, you know, how can you actually, without ever having a problem, solve the problem, that sort of thinking. So we're going to go there and play with that a little bit. Um, remember to stay to the very end of the show because that's where I'm going to put it all together and throw an answer in there with an analogy, and that is stories from the road. And just before that, we have Shelley Zorifus with her book giving you uh, an opportunity to get a free book called Recovering Autism, and, you know, we're just full of answers and information today. So I want to get started, but just before I do, I want to remind you that if you want to talk to me, you must email me at my personal email because the web talk radio folks, they nuke them. So uh, some people have been doing that, and it's, it's not getting to me, okay? Go email me on my personal email or through my website. My website is brainbody.net or lynettelouise.com, or my personal email is mom, M-O-M, the number four, evermore. So mom forevermore, and I am. And then at Juno, like junoalaska.com. All right, I'm done talking about me, and I am ready to introduce you to Dr. Rosakis. He's a medical doctor, and Dr. Bach is a Ph.D. in biochemistry. They um, have come together, and they, they personally, and I agree, think it's a wonderful combination to have a medical doctor 
mixed with a Ph.D. in biochemistry. And they think it gives them a little bit of an edge. Um, and I think you get to decide that for yourself as you listen to them. They're just really wonderful and have great voices, so this should be a good show. Uh, they're into genetics, and they like to treat the underlying cause of disease, which would be if you're getting in there in the prenatal point, you're really getting under the cause. So, hi, guys. Thanks for being here and putting up with my preamble. <laughs> Brain broad, huh? <laughs> well, I have a mini-series come out in the, on the Autism Network, and I fly around with a brain, and I fly to people's homes and help them, so I'm the brain broad, yes. <laughs> you know, oh, you know maybe fantastic. you should have a, a, an email address with brain broad at, and then you could, that'd, be, that'd be very memorable. No one else forget that. Well, we'll have to get there. You're right. I'm going to have to do that. This whole branding yourself thing, I'm kind of a, a novice at that. I just do what I think I should, and it's always a little bit scattered. So, But we're getting much better at being focused, so thank you. I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> okay. Well, it looks like we missed last week's show, Brian. We should have uh, tuned in. That would have been great. Yeah, that sounds, uh, sounds like it was fascinating. <laughs> well, since we tape, you get to listen to it if you want, and it's very fascinating. You should check it out. Yeah, no, yeah. it's really good, and it did cause a bit of a stir, so help me calm the waters and show us that we're smart. <laughs> okay. Let's just rattle the waters in a different way in terms of prevention, and um, let's talk about how we can prevent autism. Um, All right, I like that start. Let's do that. I think it begins before conception. I think uh, a husband and wife um, should have counseling. Um, and the first thing I would do if I had two people in front of me is ask them about their family history. And if they told me that there was a family history of autism, of course, or ADHD, or migraine, or um, arthritic diseases, arthritis, autoimmune diseases, um, bipolar disease, alcoholism, uh, that would tip me off that um, there's going to be some genetic uh, issue transmitted into the, um, the fetus upon conception. Uh, Dr. Baki, uh, did I uh, name enough diseases? How would you uh, take a family history if two people came in and wanted to avoid autism? Yeah, I, I think that captures it uh, quite well. And, and what we often see uh, in our patient population is that uh, exactly what Dr. Rizak has described, which is that you'll have a number of, of diseases will manifest on, on either one or the other or even both, uh, the father and the mother's uh, uh, family history. And often their children will have some manifestation of those underlying genetic errors that exist. And autism is certainly a part of that. And then other diseases which are on the autism spectrum. Exactly. Now, when I, when I first started, you know, going into homes and stuff, one of the things that came up an awful, awful lot, not, not counting the, you know, I see a lot of uh, family members who have ADHD and bipolar and different things like that, but looking at these autoimmune, a lot of eczema and a lot of asthma. Sure. Does that make sense to you? It absolutely does, and we often see within our patient populations a variety of respiratory difficulties um, that are uh, complicated by dietary and other environmental uh, chemical triggers. And uh, so those asthmatic type conditions uh, and also eczema, which you know, can be a manifestation of, of an autoimmune type reaction and, and one of the uh, very common um, provocative agents is gluten uh, for that. And, and many patients, uh, whether they be young or older, benefit from a gluten-free diet and often their skin 
uh, irritations will will improve um, through dietary modification alone. Yeah, but these are, we think, these are related to their underlying genetics. Now, Dr. Baki and I put out a press release uh, a few weeks ago on a condition called GEMS, G-E-M-S, and GEMS is what we're literally talking about, this concept of genetic enzyme methylation syndrome, uh, and the key word there is syndrome, and ADHD and autism and all those other diseases we just mentioned are part of this syndrome because they come from these genetic errors. So after doing a family history of this hypothetical couple, uh, I would do their genetic testing. And I would look to see if they have uh, one or two or more um, uh, errors in their genetics, which are very common, by the way. And if I know that, then I have a, 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 a way of guessing what the uh, developing fetus might have. And then I would be sure to treat the mother during her pregnancy to be sure that we can compensate for the genetic errors um, that she has and the developing fetus may have. For example, if both of them had multiple uh, mutations in one gene, then the chances of the fetus having those mutations are 100%. So I know before the child is even born that they have a genetic error. So now I need to, I need to correct that um, through the mother. I need to be sure the mother is adequately fed, she's eating properly, she's um, supplementing certain substances that she can't make enough of and the developing fetus can't make enough of. And one example of this is methylfolate, for example. Methylfolate is made by a very important enzyme called MTHFR and it's a very common mutation, many of us have it. And um, if the child uh, has it and if mom has it, we have to give methylfolate so that the developing fetus can have enough of that substance to develop properly. Does that make so sense? You said something really cool there. You said you would have to correct that. And I really want to underline and, and, and put highlighter on all over that because it's not the way people think about, you know, you always hear you're, gene, you're genetically predisposed or you, your DNA dictates or, and people do not consider the possibility, very often do not consider the possibility that you could discover a problem like that and make an attempt to correct it and they could still go ahead and have children. So that's by itself controversial. Here we go again. <laughs> No, it's, 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 um, they're going to have children, and these genetic errors that we speak of have to do with the uh, inability of the body to make something uh, well enough in general. There's some other issues, but just in, uh, most of the time it's an inability to make something due to a genetic error. So you simply give what the body is not able to make. Um, what about you, Dr. Baki? You want to... Yeah. Absolutely. I heard you, your intake of breath, so I want you to pipe in there. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think one of the things that's really important, Dr. Rosakis mentioned methylfolate. Uh, uh, there's also methylcobalamin and P5P, also known as PLP, which is the phosphorylated form of B6. Uh, those three biologically active uh, vitamins are now offered in a prescriptive pharmaceutical 
uh, or several of them, in fact, that are FDA approved for um, prenatal uh, treatment. And, and so women who are known to carry certain mutations uh, that render them inefficient in making these biologically active forms of very common vitamins, which are found in the diet and a lot of nutritional supplements, uh, you work around those genetic inefficiencies by delivering them uh, directly uh, to the mother. And in this case, that helps to optimize some of these inefficient biochemical reactions to ensure that you're covering as much of, of the mother's biochemistry, biochemical inadequacies as possible so that the child uh, or the developing child um, is, uh, is properly uh, or is given the proper amount of nutrients uh, in utero. You know, and, and that's one small example of many. There are obviously a lot of genetic errors that we would look at that um, could be effectively treated via combination of nutraceuticals and dietary uh, intervention. And I think that's really key. I, what I, what that points out to me is how much I love the fact that, again, like yourselves, loving the fact that you're a PhD in biochemistry combined with a, an MD doctor and the two of you can brainstorm on these things. Because what immediately comes to my mind is if you have an MD who's not really immersed in all of this and this uh, prenatal idea comes to him through whatever reading he's done and now he's loading them up with B6, but too much B6 is bad for you too. So without the proper testing here, you don't just throw this stuff at people. They, you know, folks say it's just for supplements, but it makes a big difference. Now, do you know, um, I remember reading about B6 causing proprioceptive blindness when you have too much. So if you, my question would be, if you were, say, a, a doctor that wasn't uh, looking at the wholeness of the story like you are, and you read something that said, you know, this would be good for in a prenatal situation to give this excessive amount of, precursor for B6, could you create a problem like that? Absolutely. And, and the example you listed is one of many. Uh, and in fact, P5P or B6 is necessary for a number of biochemical transformations. So whether we're talking about uh, the, the mother and the baby in utero or after the baby has been born uh, and is starting to develop as a child, uh, these types of genetic variants need to be taken into consideration. And B6 helps with the conversion of, of glutamic acid into GABA, uh, or glutamate into GABA, rather. Uh, it also helps facilitate the conversion of homocysteine down the transsulfuration pathway. And, and this is something we discussed a little bit on, on our prior mm -hmm. visit with you. Um, and too much B6 can actually speed up and make worse that genetic error uh, with what's called CBS, which is an enzyme involved in, in the methylation pathways. So you need just enough to deliver the proper amount of balance without providing too much to cause some of these other uh, undesirable effects, uh, which we've just described. And so that's why having balance rather than in absolute terms looking at supplementation level and saying, okay, let's just hit them hard with 100 milligrams per day and that's going to do the trick. Well, that may be addressing one area of their biochemistry, but actually making worse some other areas where they have some deficits. So it's really important. It's a chess game. Just as we discussed previously, you really have to know what moves to make and when to make them. Okay, so exactly. we're going to have to do that fun little break thing that I do. But before I go, I'm going to throw something in the mix. That I'm going to talk for a few seconds while you think about it. <laughs> All right, so it's about... Um, I don't know, about the 11th week of pregnancy, I think, when the neural fibers begin to grow for the corpus callosum. It's around then, anyway. And um, 
one of the things that I that I read about is that about one in four thousand infants are failing to form the corpus callosum correctly, which led me to think about. Um, I don't know if you know Kim Peek, but he was the original person that was used as the motivator for the movie Rain Man. And um, he had these astonishing feats of memory and stuff. And, and he has a malformed or non-existent corpus callosum. And so uh, that led to a lot of people looking into autism and the corpus callosum. So certainly it's not the whole picture, but it does give people sort of something to think about that's just not a lot of science words. <laughs> and, um, but still, the corpus callosum, often when there's individuals that have a problem in it, they meet the criteria for autism, not just can peak, but very, very, very often. I think it's, um, well, I think in 80% of the cases, I think they end up with like motor delays and speech problems. And depending on how big that problem is, it can end up being an autism diagnosis. So this is something that happens genetically uh, or happens in the womb. I don't know if you know anything about how your work would apply to the development of the corpus callosum, but think about it for a second. Well, I tell everybody that. You are listening to a new spin on autism. Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, the Brain Broad, your story teacher host. <laughs> I've got to get used to that. Um, and uh, we are having a wonderful discussion with Drs. Rosakis and Dr. Vaki. We're talking about uh, prenatal conditions that can lead to problems, possibly autism, other things as well. Um, and how to possibly prevent that and, and look in the world and say, wow, it's a crazy world. How do I make sure that I give my future child uh, the best possibilities? So we're, it's a wonderful show. Stay with us. Um, make sure you hang in there for stories from the road. Where I'm going to answer the question, is it ever too early for early intervention? Although it sounds like it's being answered within the body of the show itself already. And stick with me for, okay, 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 it's the great guest giveaway. <laughs> because Shelley Zorfus wrote a really helpful book and you have a chance on getting it. All right. Guys, did I throw something you can't answer? <laughs> well, there are some articles in the literature that talk about abnormalities of DNA methylation um, causing uh, changes in the corpus callosum. And um, the, the, the reason that's important is because what we do is deal with methylation. Um, the, the, the genetics of which we talked about earlier have to do with many things, including um, methylation. And one of the um, uh, roles of methylation is to produce a substance called SAMI. And SAMI is uh, it's in the grocery store if you look on the bottom shelf of the, uh, of the nutraceutical area. Um, About 30 bucks and, a box. That's right. And um, <laughs> SAMI is uh, very interesting. Your, your body has to make SAMI because with it, it controls your DNA. And that's why we think people who develop uh, autoimmune diseases, for example, uh, have an uh, overactive immune system because their DNA is not working properly. There's also connections between low levels of methylation or presumed low levels of SAMI and, and cancer. In fact, uh, low levels of uh, methylation um, are the most common findings in all of cancer. So when you brought up corpus callosum and methylation, um, I just took a quick look on the, uh, uh, in the literature, and sure enough, there's a connection uh, between methylation and, uh, and corpus callosum problems. So 
so these same genetic errors that we talked about earlier may in some way affect methylation, which may affect the corpus callosum's development, and those same errors are related to um, um, uh, autism. Well, uh, uh-huh. you, when we talk about supplementation, some of the things that are really important um, when we talk about methylation, we have a number of, you know, all of these biomolecules are methylated. They're found in foods that are fresh and whole. Um, things like choline, like trimethylglycine, like folates, like cobalamin and, and certain foods. Um, a great example of this is uh, choline and its effect in there is a, a in fetal alcohol exposure in the brain. They also have issues with the corpus callosum. And one of the things that can be very helpful because it, it supports the formation of things like phosphatidylcholine, uh, which is part of what makes up a lot of these membranes for myelination, for example, that are really important, choline supplementation can be absolutely essential. Uh, and it's found in a number of foods. We can also give it as a supplement. We can also give its, uh, what it's converted to in the body, which is trimethylglycine, and that's also found in foods. So at each step along the way, we would make sure that nutritionally, through diet and nutraceutical supplementation, they would be covered. And so I think to answer your question uh, about that critical stage is that in the first trimester, we'd ensure that the mother had all of those necessary precursors to deliver to the baby so that as the fetus is developing, uh, it has all of the raw materials necessary uh, to, to uh, avoid that situation where we had deficits in, uh, in developing really critical parts of the brain. Um, now, obviously, like most of these things, they're multifactorial. So we want to make sure that you know, the mother is avoiding heavy metal exposure, that she's eating organic and whole foods, and that she's using nutraceuticals in a very targeted way based on her genetics. So I, I think all of that would help potentially with, uh, with the corpus callosum issue that you, you address. Now, are there other mitigating factors, of course? So we wouldn't necessarily, I, I don't think, reasonably expect to treat all of those. Um, no, but being aware yeah. that, um, that what we do now affects the structure. I mean, there, there's functional issues and there's structural issues. And, you know, if, if we continue to live in a way that they're separate, we're never going to, you know, they come together. So Sure, um, absolutely. Well, that's, 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 all right. that's a quick answer to your... Uh, well, it's uh, fantastic. You know that somebody really knows their stuff when they can not be thrown by something out of left field. So um, well done, beautifully uh, answered. And go on, talk, talk to us about um, how you approach then the prenatal condition. And, and okay, well, mom is, mom is now pregnant, and um, we've, we, we know her genetics. We have a good sense of what the genetics are of the child. Um, we're supplementing properly, not blindly, as you said earlier, giving uh, B6, and as Dr. Baki said as well, that in some circumstances giving too much B6 uh, can be harmful and a problem. And how do you know if it could be? The answer is genetics. So you give the right amounts of the various substances to the mother, and now the baby is born. So now what? Let's breastfeed that baby right? Why, why should we breastfeed that baby? Because um, we want to be sure the baby continues to receive all the appropriate nutrients uh, from mom, and let's continue to support mom if she has any uh, biochemical disturbances from her genetics. In fact, we can test mom. Even during pregnancy, we can actually 
test a mother to be sure that she has adequate amounts of substances in her blood. So not only can we check the genetics, which is just like a blueprint, but we can actually check the levels of these important substances in mom, make sure she has those, and as she's breastfeeding the child, um, uh, the child is going to receive uh, these nutrients. I have a question back to you. Have you heard that there's a problem with um, uh, bottle feeding and autism? Yes, actually, um, it's interesting because a lot of the people that read about that, they decide that they have to breastfeed for a whole year because if you don't breastfeed for a year, you end up, you know, with higher likelihood of, of having autism. So as far as the stats go, six months is a minimum and a year is, is the hoped-for amount. But when you look deeper into that, um, you know, again, it's just like everything else. People, it, there's just way too much of this, oh, I read this and now everyone's doing it. And um, I've had parents where it's been very necessary to not breastfeed but to bottle feed instead for different reasons, for nutrient reasons. They're not making the right, uh, the right milk and the child's starving. Or the child has a sensory issue with being that close to the body at that time or d different things. Or the stress for the parent has made it so that they're not doing well. So though I've read and uh, seen about breastfeeding being, you know, the choice, of course, um, that's not 100% true. Right. And Dr. Baki is going to give us some clarity on that due to his extensive knowledge of, of foods. Yeah, I, I think with regards to whether or not and, and how long uh, to breastfeed, certainly that has to be taken into account. And there are factors well beyond uh, you know, autism that need to be considered when making that determination. Um, with regards to the nutrient supply in the milk, often uh, nutrients will be delivered through the mother's breast milk to the detriment of the mother. And this is where that postnatal supplementation for the mother is so critical. Um, and, and if they do, if and when they transition away from breast milk um, to other supplemental forms of, of milk for the child, it's important to take into account what is actually contained within that milk, uh, regardless of source. So I'll give you an example. If you were to transition directly to homogenized cow's milk, for example, um, there's quite a bit of free cysteine that is available in cow's milk, in addition, in addition to other sulfur-containing molecules. If this child has a CBS polymorphism, uh, there's a very good chance that they're going to have um, added sulfur metabolism difficulties and, and additional sulfur burden is something to be taken into account. So that homogenization process actually creates more free sulfur than what you'd find in raw cow's milk. And obvious, for obvious reasons, uh, homogenization is important to kill bacteria when you're transporting milk across the country to deliver it to the masses. Um, but one of the consequences of that, and, and this is really an important point, when foods are processed, when they go through the processing step, whether it be fermentation or, uh, or heating through homogenization um, or any other modification uh, by man, where the food is degraded and those molecules and chemicals are degraded by man, they often convert into substances which can be neurologically destabilizing. So what we often message our patients when we're talking about foods is that the fresher, the better, and to look at foods in the context of your genetics. So to evaluate what is appropriate for each individual based on their genetic, underlying genetic uh, 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 
situation, whatever their genetics happen to be. Um, and okay, so, so what, about, what about a mother that um, should not breastfeed or where there's a problem with breastfeeding? Uh, do you have a, a thought on that? I think, I think if, if the mother, if, if we know the genetics of the child, then we know exactly what that child needs to uh, receive and what not to receive too much of. And just knowing that, and knowing that the food supply isn't what it used to be, um, that we can tailor uh, a food recommendation to the child that is not going to be breastfed. And by doing that, we can continue to prevent uh, autism. Going oh, can you, can you tailor the food to the mother so that her breast milk would be yes. uh, more adequate for the child? Yes, if we know her genetics, the answer is yes to that. Absolutely, right. yes. Very cool. Oh my gosh, I could, you guys have to come a lot. <laughs> All right, you realize that we're, we're at the, okay, so you need to sort of, not that you haven't already given so much information, I'm sure people are listening to the show several times and writing notes, but is there a, a particular thing you want to say right now and then tell them how to find you and get the rest of the info? Well, sure, we're, we're on the internet at um, xrmd.com. Uh, xrmd.com md.com and if uh, anyone uh, wishes our help in uh, uh, being tested and you know, figuring all these issues out uh, there's a little button there where they can uh, put in their health history register and then we talk with them and, and help them uh, and work them up and help treat them awesome and uh, a message that you want to share autism is part of GEMS GEMS is a condition where the genetics are not perfect uh, causing enzymes in the methylation pathway which cause a whole slew of symptoms and diseases and it's treatable. Okay, so I have a son that's um, my lower functioning son, he's my slow moving miracle, um, but right now he's moving fast. So <laughs> my intention is when he plateaus, I can't do it right now because he's literally unfolding before our eyes and we're all going, I don't want to go out of the house because we want to watch him talk. But um, if and when he plateaus, I'm going to make having him uh, be one of your clients, I'm saying this so everyone hears it, um, and we are going to continually report on development. Are you guys up for that? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, All right. That that'd be that would be wonderful. Okay. So that's my thoughts for the future for our relationship. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. I wish I had like a three-hour show. Uh, it's awesome, but I need to let um, my author talk now. <laughs> thank you so much, guys. Our pleasure. Thank you, Annette. It was a All pleasure. All right. That's Dr. Azakis and Dr. Baki. Okay, 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 okay. It's time for the great guest giveaway. Today we have Shelly Zorfus with us. She's an author and a very interesting woman, by the way. Um, she's been teaching children and young adults who've been identified with, you know, stuff like ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, dyslexia for more than two decades. And she does that in a one-on-one -on -one program similar to me, Yes, I already like her, where she's been able to field test some of her work. Um, she grew up, by the way, with uh, undiagnosed dyslexia, so she had to figure it out, you know, like a lot of us, and find ways to make it seem like she was reading. Um, mm -hmm. She's known for her witty articles, and they're published nationally and internationally. According to Shelley, and this is where we're going to come into the interview, she says, autism is different layers of illness. You can reboot the brain when it's flexible and strip away layers of illnesses. 
So that's a fantastic place to start. Let's begin with hello and what do you mean by that? Hi, Shelley. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So what do you mean by that? Okay, so uh, a bunch of different illnesses are put together, but they're just given one name. They're given the name of autism. I believe that some of your listeners are aware of the uh, chemicals that are shot into these babies at three hours old in the vaccines. Is that, mm-hmm. is that okay? Of course, of course. So, okay, so at three hours old, they're injected to prevent a sexually transmitted disease that they can never have. But they're getting aluminum, they're getting thimerosal, antifreeze, and bombing fluid, and on and on. And right then and there, some of these children become ill. It's hard for a new mom to know because, you know, the three-hour-old baby or the next day, it, it sleeps and it cries and it eats. And a few months later, it sleeps and it cries and it, it eats. So how is a new mom to know that the child was made ill, that it's too early for them to even figure it out? Okay, so you're a proponent of vaccine damage. All right, we're into it. Um, and you're saying that, what, so you've got maybe a myelination problem is one of your problems, and then you might have a problem in the, the migration of the neurons as a result of the changes or an inflammatory response, and, you, and they're all different illnesses, and that's called autism. Right, but I'd like to make it a little more easier to understand because those are like scientific terms that, Really, only parents who have really struggled with autistic kids have gone into. So let's go to okay. the more basic ones. These children have incredible skin issues. They scratch until they bleed. They have bowel problems. One, one day uh, they're running to the bathroom, and a few days later they can't go. So it's a constant, either severe constipation or severe diarrhea. They don't, their eyes don't track. If you look at their eyes, one eye might be like looking at you and the other eye might actually be turned out or turned in, drifting away. So they need eye exercises. They have gastroesophagitis reflux disease where they're vomiting a lot. They have food allergies. They have peanut allergies. Uh, no surprise there, peanuts are put in vaccines. They have walking problems. They have listening problems. They have called auditory processing issues. Uh, they have a host of problems. And it really can't just be autism. So my, my concept is by looking at the symptoms, the scratching, the shaking, you know, how they cover their ears when the noise is too loud, or they r- run into a closet and shut the door, that's a fantastic clue on what a parent or a professional can do. You don't want to go into the closet and be dragging the child out with some reward and punishing therapy. You want to figure out why did they go in there. And when they go in there, they're doing an amazing job. They're healing themselves. They're calming themselves down. Their message is either the lights are too bright and they're fluorescent, there's a smell in the room, or there's something that upset them. And they know when they go into that dark space that they can settle themselves down. I agree. I agree. Um, However... Once you kind of figure that out, if you can't get at it biomedically and all you've got, you're a parent and your kid's going in the closet and calming himself there, I think it is a good idea to encourage change because that helps the brain to heal and and grow in a different direction. Do you agree? 
Oh, absolutely. You can't leave them in the closet forever. Right. <laughs> I just want to make sure they knew. <laughs> and I'm not kidding, actually, because sometimes parents are so afraid of, and, and it's a difficult balancing act, don't you think? I mean, it's really hard. You go, oh, here's my child. He's gone in the closet. Clearly he needs it. Clearly he's helping himself. So I can't take him out. So I can't, what do I do? And then um, I come in and I join him in the closet and I play with him and, and we'll hear what you do. But whatever it is, it isn't. Leave him in the closet forever. Yeah, but I think my, my example is like when you're at home and other people are not looking at you. In fact, I recommend you coming up with your own kind of squeeze machine that like Temple Grandin referred to when, when she wrote her books. Um, Parents can, as long as it's a safe, dark place that they can go to, uh, for example, parents can pick up a big box from a refrigerator supply company or a store, and you can pad the inside gently, and you can put a window or a door, light on its side, um, and make something really fun and wonderful. I'm not suggesting you put your child in the closet. I'm suggesting they will naturally need a small, dark space. Some kids build forts in their bedroom. Uh, others stay under the blanket or <laughs> some of them under the yes. bed. We want to use that as a tool that they know that they can go to when they need to go there. In, in time, the child will run in there and come right back out on their own when you figure out what is the issue that, that's causing them anxiety. So like I said, we're looking for the smell, the sound, the light. There's something in the environment that triggered their need to run and hide. So whatever safe way you can do that. Now, obviously, you can't go to the special education room and tell the teacher let my child stay in the closet. You can can bring the box, though. My sister, or I'm sorry, my sister's daughter, so my niece is Asperger's, and she uh, taught at a college, and she had a big refrigerator box, Mm -hmm. and she had it in her office, and she's like a big wig, and she would go inside. And she would sit there and do all of her correcting and marking and writing and come out of her refrigerator box and go and teach a class and be okay, honestly. I've seen parents that ordered like an Indian teepee that folds up and folds open again, pretty big one. Um, Those are wonderful. Buying a tent, like a child's tent to leave in the bedroom, that's fine too. That's awesome. These are great ideas. Okay, so are these ideas in your book? And let's talk about your book a little bit. Yeah, those ideas are in my book, and the fact that it's multiple illnesses is in my book. And a big uh, thing in the book is when children lean over, let's say we're talking about an ADHD child, and that child leans over when they're trying to do their homework or reading or writing, and their face is in the crux of their arm, like let's say they're a righty, their left arm is extended, and they're sitting at the desk with their face in their arm, the teacher will say often, oh, this, is, this child's not motivated, they're lazy, and I'm going to say that there's no such thing as not motivated or lazy. What they're doing is they're placing their face in their arm because their left and their right eyes are not tracking together. So when they're trying to see the words, the, the words are actually moving off the page. And eye doctors don't, most eye doctors don't know about this. Child study teams don't know about this. Pediatricians don't work with this. No one seems to work with this, very, very few people. And that information lets you know that there's something with the way the left and the right eye are seeing or not seeing. And that was an issue that came up for me before I was diagnosed with dyslexia. I was just very, very lucky to come across that. 
I went, to, I went into a year with doctors of what was called vision training. And vision training was like a gym for the eyes. There were toys and games. That words were shot up on the screen. There were um, moving objects. All sorts of things to get my left and my right eye to focus in the same place at the same time. And it, it's just a brilliant area that has uh, been overlooked. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, There's a thing called Erlen syndrome as well that's very similar. It makes the the letters and stuff jump around, and people will sometimes use colors that they place on top of it. But it is a kind of interesting fact that our doctors, the people we go to for these things, even your doctor that would prescribe your glasses, they don't know about these actual processing issues, and it's a real problem. Right. Now, take ADHD, for example, Most of the time, not 100%, I would say around 70%, ADHD is actually an internal systemic infection. When you learn about the infection and you learn about the cures, the child is not going to have ADHD anymore. Now, of course, I would say, okay, when they're coming out of ADHD, do the eye exercises. Let's look at some easy phonics methods, which are also in the book. All of this is in the book. But... um, I expected you, I kind of expected you to ask me what it's an infection. <laughs> yeah, I was actually right. letting you finish and waiting for a breath of air. <laughs> and I was I was tracking back in my mind when uh, I had a serious infection from uh, in uh, improperly done inoculation and almost lost my arm as a child. And after that, I was pretty air heady. We call it. I had a lot of trouble focusing, and I've always wondered and tried to pinpoint if that was the place when so many of my Asperger's-type issues started. But it's, you know, really hard to say because you're looking back over time. But um, I believe there's, there's lots of people who think it's an infection. I am, I've heard of Lyme's. People think it's Lyme's. People think, so talk to me a little bit about what you think when you say an infection. Do you mean a particular one? Yep. or Yeah, mm-hmm. talk to us. The most common one that it seems like people haven't put this together, um, I believe that, at, well, after children are vaccinated, they start to get those baby ear infections, those strep infections, whatever, sinus infections, and they take antibiotic after antibiotic. They get rid of the infection in the right ear. They get it in the left ear. Well, if you keep taking the antibiotics, um, they are there to kill the infection, but they also kill all the good bacteria. So, therefore, what you're developing is a chronic yeast infection in the gut. Everybody has yeast in the low part of their body, but if you keep taking antibiotics, the bacteria, the healthy bacteria that keeps it down there gets destroyed by the antibiotics, and they develop like spores in their gut, and these little spores come up, kind of eat the lining of the protective lining of the intestines, and then when they're done, the child has yeast. Most people think that that's just like a woman's problem on the outside of the body, it's related to it, but it's not what's going on on the outside that you see. It's what's going on on the inside that you don't see. Right. So there's some um, simple remedies for that. Of course, uh, most of your listeners probably know or want to know about acidophilus. There's lactobacillus acidophilus. There's primidophilus. Uh, my recommendation is to get a whole bunch of different types of acidophilus from the health food store and rotate them. Don't use the same one day in, day out. Uh, you don't want to oversensitize the body to it. 
and just okay. keep rotating. A lot of people think they'll just eat yogurt and they'll take care of the problem. No, I, I know, I know. <laughs> but yeah, it's not. It's not yeah. 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 Okay, so we're running out of time. I hate that we're running out of time. Actually, you're full of lots of good information. But let's talk about your book. It's called Recovering Autism, ADHD, and Special Needs, which I find interesting because um, it's brave to say it's, you know, to title it that. It says right away what it's about. There's also a subtitle. Um, but what really interests me on that is that you're including not, again, it's, you're not just sticking with autism. You're saying ADHD and special needs. So Lots of lots of people talk about recovering autism. It's like a nice big huge uh, pit of controversy. But you know now they're saying they grow out of it because you can't deny that the kids have gotten better. They used to just say you were lying. Um, so there's lots of of controversy going on around autism. You don't hear it very much around other disorders like ADHD, dyslexia, just various special needs, which is interesting because we just accept that those people can get better um, because it's been happening over the years. And we don't, you know, it's controversy when it's autism. Uh, what's a special need that you think outside of ADHD and autism you've seen improve? Dyslexia, learning anything else? Learning disabilities and dyslexia. For example, most learning disabilities rest on the fact that the children are not processing what you tell them to do. So if you have a child and you say to them, go to your room, get your red jacket, your blue pencil, put your Legos away, and one or two other instructions. An hour later, they're sitting on the floor playing Legos, and you think that they didn't listen to you, but they did listen to you. They only processed the word, the instruction, and the word Legos. So to them, Legos meant, oh, I can go play Legos. They missed the put away your Legos. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Very nice example. Okay. In the, her subtitle on the book is A Guide to Help Parents and Those Who Work with Children Heal Their Children Now. I love that. Um, okay, we, we, we're out of time. You have to give something away. It's a great guest giveaway. <laughs> so are you going to give us a book? I'm going to be sending you some books. And, uh, you can and then I'll them. pass them out, right? I'll pass them out, and uh, I really appreciate some feedback uh, Boy, I could go on for hours on other things. There was one other thing I'd like to mention if there's any time left. Absolutely. I always say the very next thing I say is you get this is your moment to say whatever you want to say, and then we're going to say goodbye. But um, let me remind people it's called Recovering Autism, ADHD, and Special Needs. If you want that book, you give me an email, all right, at mom, number four, evermore, because I am a mom forevermore. At sure. Juno, J-U-N-O dot com. And you put in the subject line, Recovering Autism. That's enough. And I will come and I will find that email and I will send you a book once I get it. And the, this is Shelly Zorifus we're talking to. She's going to give us her last little gem of wisdom. And maybe she'll come back and give us some more gems another time. I'd love to. Okay. So my idea is that you have a window of opportunity to help these children heal, to sort of reboot the brain when the brain is growing rapidly. So that's somewhere from birth to around the age of nine. But if a parent starts getting early intervention, speech therapy, physical therapy, music therapy, art therapy, you keep that window open for many more years. 
by putting those interventions in. So maybe you still have till the time you're 12 or 13 or 14 and so on. The, the idea is to jump in, not listen to the doctors, not listen to your in-laws. When you see your child doing something that doesn't feel right, trust your instincts and go with it. Very nice. All right, Shelley. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. And you guys, come on, claim a book. Wow, this is an information-packed show. I hope you were writing it down or downloaded so you can keep listening over and over and over again. I know I'm going to have to go back and listen a few times. Let us, oh, pull it all together because now it is time for Story. All right, I'm going to have to be pretty short and sweet here because this has been a long show. I want to wind up a couple of things. Cow's milk. It's either Dr. Bach here or Dr. Rosakis. They both have similar voices. I can never tell which one's which. <laughs> uh, that was talking about the cow's milk situation when you're moving a child from, he just used it as an example, from uh, perhaps breast milk to cow's milk. And, and it was interesting to me because when I adopted my son Chance, um, at the time, I was married. It was, happened occasionally. And um, he, my husband at the time, always wanted everything to be, like, first class. We could never afford that, by the way, but that's what he wanted. So he believed in milk. Milk's good for you. He wanted me to give a chance milk. And I was actually trying to breastfeed, and it's a long story that we'll get into some other day, but, um, which I successfully did as a, you know, as a result of working with the Lilek lead. Lilek League. But um, point is that at one point, we first got this boy into the home. He's nine months old. He's still um, on formula. My husband wanted me to give him straight up homogenized milk. So I thought, well, I mean, he's old enough to take it probably. <laughs> so I gave him homogenized milk. And he immediately got covered in a horrible, horrible case of thrush, in the, not in the mouth, but, but on his bottom. And he was, it looked like impetigo all over his butt. It was just sad and painful to watch. And I'm still giving him the homogenized milk until I get to the doctor and we figure out that I'm giving him something way too rich and way too difficult for him. What's interesting is he was um, on the spectrum, or at least eventually the spectrum grew to engulf him. And uh, when I look back now, when I listen to our doctors, I realize that that would have been a case where early intervention might have made a big difference, and perhaps I predisposed him to a sulfur problem, so who knows. All I know is I was doing my best loving him, and he's off the spectrum now and doing great. Um, I'm going to tell you two more stories. One is my daughter, Brendessa. Now, remember, in my family, there's a fair amount of, we're all brushed with a little autism or Asperger's or whatever you want to call it, and... Um, there's, you know, there were occasions where I believe stories were changed. So my daughter, Brendessa, was burnt on her legs. Um, some hot, a pot of hot water tipped over and got her on the legs, and she was really in bad shape. She's fine and has just some slight, slight scarring at this point. But it was a pretty awful time for us, and she, shortly after, wasn't able to move around. She had, you know, bandages all over her legs, and now a childhood started walking, could no longer walk, and um, I looked over at her one day, and was, yeah, maybe a week after the incident, and her eyes were all glazed over, and she couldn't hear me when I called her name, and she was different, and I assumed that it was from this trauma, and maybe it was, I have no way of knowing, 
Because intuitively, instinctively, I went, I remember having this thought, oh my goodness, she's retarded. This is my thought. I don't apologize for it. Um, And I went over and I started playing with her and trying to get, you know, being exciting. And it was a real natural way for me to reach her. Now, this kept happening for quite some time. And uh, even as she got all better and was able to walk again and, and move beyond that, she still um, was a very, she was the accident-prone kid. She was the one that would, you know, she got hit by a car once on her bike. She put her tooth through her lip off the playground. I mean, she was always that kid. And she was the one that, um, you know, was easily made unhappy, easily made sensitive. Uh, if a if hundred people in a room thought she was the most amazing person, she worried about the one person who didn't. She was that kid. Um, and, and very much probably ADHD with a little brush of autism. So um, I believe that her story was completely changed by the fact that the minute I saw it, I played with her and I, and I excited her and I embraced her. And I didn't go, oh, she's not listening to me and, and run away in fear. I ran to her in refusing to accept such a condition. So the question is, early intervention, is it ever too early? Well, that depends. It depends on your technique. And that's the reason I want to get to this last story, because it's haunting me. Just recently, I went and met a new client, and um, just a young boy of six. And from the moment I met him, not the, no, not the first moment, because in the first moment I met him, he had his face down on the ground. He looked like he probably was autistic. I assumed I was meeting an autistic person. That's what I was told. And I look in the window as I approach the door, and he's laying on the ground, and he's got his face in the ground. So I do what I do. I join him. I'm outside the door. I lay on the ground, too. He had spotted me. I saw him spot me and then put his head down or return his head to being down. So I lay down on the ground and I start talking to him through the door. Fortunately, it was good weather because I'd have probably done it anyway. And I'm saying, you know, by the way, I'm going to come in. My name's Lynette and I tell him all those things. And I'm going to come in as soon as you raise up your eyes and look at me. And I match my breathing with his breathing. And I could hear quite well through this door. And... Um, he just eventually was just too curious. So he sat up and looked at me, and I said, oh, thank you for inviting me in. And we, were, we had begun, and this is how I begin, is, is by connecting immediately. But from that moment forward, I didn't really see autism. I mean, he, we went in his room, and he said, what have you got? And I said, they're computers. And he had quiet moments, sure. Um, he had things, absolutely. But, but he kept on beating all of the criteria, like he said, can I tell you a little about my past? Um, I said, sure, (laughs) because I'm not used to having a child (laughs) that's supposed to be autistic telling me he wants to talk about his past. Um, He could talk about his past. He could talk about his future. He could talk about his present. He could, you know, he's complete. And I kept looking at the list of all the different things and looking for repetitious behaviors, and, and I'm not finding them. I'm not finding them at all. What I am finding is a very low self-esteem child who has a focus issue, maybe some auditory is- processing issues, but minor, and totally low self-esteem. And he's been programmed for. Early intervention came into his life at four. He was diagnosed three or four. And I'm, my God, I was so haunted by this. 
because this is the third time now I've seen it. So instead of living the life from from three to to six where you play in the playgrounds and you laugh and people chase you and and you have a great old time, and, and when you run away, everybody goes, oh, there he goes being, you know, a little hyper boy. <laughs> um, instead, he was programmed for. Now, in, in fairness to the parents, we live in a climate where there's so much social, social sharing that everybody thinks their child's going to be autistic, and they're panicking, and they're trying to fix it right away. But they're fixing it by taking childhood away. And I'm not okay with that. I'm just not. They're fixing it by sticking someone at a table and teaching him and, and, and having him say, hey, I don't really want to be here, so I'm going to hide my face in the floor instead of playing and laughing and tickling. And when they do tickle, they tickle because it's toy break time or reward time. I went through his paperwork, and everything I read, every single report, he seemed normal to the testers until they put him in an unnatural situation, a testing environment, at which point he no longer appeared so normal, and now his test scores are dropping. But it always happened after he was put into an unnatural environment. And then they could see what they'd been told they were supposed to find. So to the question, Early intervention, is it ever too early? The answer is, it depends on your technique. I would do neurofeedback on a six-month-old. I'm told you're supposed to wait till the neurons complete their migration process, and I'm thinking, that's silly. Let's help them migrate in the right way. But that's a simple procedure where you sit for a few minutes and watch a video game a few times a week. I would not take someone's childhood away. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher house. And this is a new spin on autism. Answers, sometimes different ones. Thank you for being here because otherwise I would be talking to myself. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to our Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of a new spin on autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. I can't hear you.